Chapter One of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright. Chapter One The Pilgrim's Way. Three hundred and seventy years have passed since the shrine of St. Thomas at Canterbury was swept away and the martyrs' ashes were scattered to the winds. The age of pilgrimages has gone by, the conditions of life have changed, and the influences which drew such vast multitudes of men and women to worship at the murdered archbishop's tomb have long ago ceased to work on the popular mind. No longer does the merry cavalcade of Chaucer's Lay ride forth in the freshness of the spring morning, knight and merchant, scholar and lawyer, prioress and wife of Bath, yeomen and priest and friars a motley company from all parts of the realm ready to wend in on their pilgrimage with full devout courage to canterbury the days of pilgrimages are over their fashion has passed away but still some part of the route which the travellers took can be traced and the road they trod still bears the name of the pilgrim's way over the surrey hills and through her stately parks the dark yews which lined the path may yet be seen by many a quiet kentish homestead the grassy track still winds its way along the lonely hillside overlooking the blue weald and if you ask its name the labourer who guides the plough or the wagoner driving his team will tell you that it is the pilgrim's road to canterbury so the old name lives and the memory of that famous pilgrimage which chaucer sang has not yet died out of the people's heart and although strangers journey no longer from afar to the martyr's shrine it is still a pleasant thing to ride out on a spring or summer morning and follow the pilgrim's way for the scenes through which it leads are fair and the memories that it wakes belong to the noblest pages of england's story in those old days the pilgrims who came to canterbury approached the holy city by one of the three following routes there was first of all the road taken by chaucer's pilgrims from london through deptford greenwich rochester and sittingbourne the way trodden by all who came from the north the midlands and the eastern counties and by those foreigners who like erasmus had first visited london but the greater number of the foreign pilgrims from france germany and italy landed at sandwich haven or dover and approached canterbury from the south while others especially those who came from normandy and brittany landed at southampton and travelled through the southern counties of hampshire surrey and kent many of these doubtless stopped at winchester attracted by the fame of st swithin the great healing bishop and either here or else at guildford they would be joined by the pilgrims from the west of england on their way to the shrine of canterbury this was the route taken by henry the second when landing at southampton on his return from france he made his first memorable pilgrimage to the tomb of the murdered archbishop in the month of july eleven seventy four and this route it is which trodden by thousands of pilgrims during the next three centuries may still be clearly defined through the greater part of its course, and which in Surrey and Kent bears the historic name of the Pilgrim's Way. A very ancient path it is, far older than the days of the Plantagenets and Normans, of shrines and pilgrimages. For antiquarian researches have abundantly proved this road to be an old British track, which was in use even before the coming of the Romans. It may even have been, as some writers suppose, the road along which caravans of merchants brought their ingots of tin from Cornwall to be shipped at what was then the great harbour of Britain, the Rupitine port, 
afterwards Sandwich Haven, and then borne overland to Massilia and the Mediterranean shores. Ingots of tin, buried it may be in haste by merchants attacked on their journey by robbers, have, it is said, been dug up at various places along this route, and British earthworks have been found in its immediate neighborhood. The road was, there can be no doubt, used by the Romans, and all along its course remains of Roman villas, baths, and pavements have been brought to light, together with large quantities of Roman coins, cinerary urns, and pottery of the most varied description. In medieval days, this tin road, as Mr. Grant Allen calls it, still remained the principal thoroughfare from the west to the east of England. It followed the long line of hills which runs through the north of Hampshire and across Surrey and Kent, that famous chalk ridge which has for us so many different associations, with whose scenery William Corbett, for instance, has made us all familiar in the story of his rides to and from the Wen and it lay outside the great trackless and impassable forest of Anderida, which in those days still covered a great part of the southeast counties of England. Dean Stanley, in his eloquent account of the Canterbury pilgrimage, describes this road as a byway, and remarks that the pilgrims avoided the regular roads, probably for the same reason as in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath. The highways were unoccupied, and the traveller walked through byways. But the statement is misleading and there can be little doubt that in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries this road was, if not the only means of communication between west and east, at least the principal thoroughfare across this part of England, and was as such the route naturally chosen by pilgrims to Canterbury. Certain peculiarities, it is interesting to note, mark its course from beginning to end. It clings to the hills, and, whenever it is possible, avoids the marshy ground of the valleys. It runs not on the summit of the downs, but about halfway down the hillside, where there is shelter from the wind, as well as sunshine to be had under the crest of the ridge. And its course is marked by rows of yew trees, often remarkable for their size and antiquity. Some of these are at least seven or eight hundred years old, and must have reared their ancient boughs on the hillside before the feet of pilgrims ever trod these paths. So striking is this feature of the road, and so fixed is the idea that some connection exists between these yews and the pilgrim's way, that they are often said to have been planted with the express object of guiding travellers along the road to Canterbury. This, however, we need hardly say, is a fallacy. Yews are by no means peculiar to the pilgrim's way, but are to be found along every road in the chalk districts. They spring up in every old hedgerow on this soil, and are for the most part sown by the birds but the presence of these venerable and picturesque forms does lend an undeniable charm to the ancient track, and in some places where the line of cultivation gradually spreading upwards has blotted out every other trace of the road, where the ploughshare has upturned the sod and the hedgerows have disappeared, three or four of these grand old trees may still be seen standing by themselves in the midst of a ploughed field, the last relics of a bygone age. The murder of Becket took place on the 29th of December, 1170. At five o'clock on that winter evening, as the archbishop was on his way to Vespers, the king's men, Reginald Fitzurse, and three knights who had accompanied him from Saltwood Castle, rushed upon him with their swords and murdered him in the north transept of his own cathedral. The tragic circumstances of Becket's end made a profound impression on the people of England, and universal horror was excited by this act of sacrilege. Whatever his faults may have been, the murdered archbishop had dared to stand up against the crown for the rights of the church, and had died rather than yield to the king's demands. For the name of Jesus and the defense of the church, I am ready to die, 
were his last words as he fell under the assassin's blows. When he landed at Sandwich on his return from France, the country folk crowded to meet him and hailed him as the father of orphans and deliverer of the oppressed, crying, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. His journey to Canterbury was one long triumphal procession. The poor looked to him as their champion and defender, who had laid down his life in the cause of freedom and righteousness. Henceforth, Thomas became a national hero and was everywhere honored as the martyr of the English. The popular belief in his holiness was confirmed by the miracles that were wrought in his name from the moment of his death. A violent storm broke over the cathedral when the fatal deed was done, and was followed by a red glow, which illuminated the choir where the dead man's body was laid before the altar. The next day the monks buried the corpse in a marble tomb behind Our Lady's altar in the undercroft. For nearly a year no mass was said in the cathedral, no music was heard, no bells were rung. The altars were stripped of their ornaments, and the crucifixes and images were covered over. Meanwhile, reports reached Canterbury of the wonderful cures performed by the martyred archbishop. On the third day after the murder, the wife of a Sussex knight, who suffered from blindness, invoked the blessed martyr's help, and was restored to sight. And on the very night of the burial, the paralytic wife of a citizen of Canterbury was cured by a garment which her husband had dipped in the murdered saint's blood. These marvels were followed by a stream of devout pilgrims who came to seek healing at the martyr's tomb or to pay their vows for the mercies which they had received. A monk was stationed at the grave to receive offerings and report the miracles that were wrought in the chapter. At first these wonders were kept secret for fear of the king and of Becket's enemies, the de Brocks, whose men guarded the roads to Canterbury. The doors of the crypt were kept bolted and barred and only the poor and the town and the neighboring villages crept to the tomb. But on Easter Day, 1171, the crowds rushed in to see a dumb man who was said to have recovered his speech, and on the following Friday the crypt was thrown open to the public. From that time, writes Benedict, the monk of Canterbury, the scene of the Pool of Bethesda was daily renewed in the cathedral, and numbers of sick and helpless persons were seen to be lying on the pavement of the great church. These great miracles are wrought, wrote John of Salisbury, an intimate friend of Becket, who became Bishop of Chartres in 1176, and was an able statesman and scholar. In the place of his passion, and in the place where he lay before the great altar before his burial, and in the tomb where he was laid at last, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and a thing unheard of since the days of our fathers, the dead are raised to life." From all parts of England the sick and suffering now crowded to Canterbury, telling the same marvellous tale, how Thomas had appeared to them robed in white, with a thin red streak of blood across his face, bringing healing and peace. In towns and villages, in castles and cottages, throughout the kingdom, writes another contemporary chronicler, every one from the highest to the lowest wishes to visit and honour his tomb. Clerks and laymen, rich and poor, nobles and common people, fathers and mothers with their children, masters with their servants all come hither moved by the same spirit of devotion they travel by day and night in winter and summer however cold the weather may be and the inns and hostelries on the road to canterbury are as crowded with people as great cities are on market days on the twenty first of february eleven seventy three pope alexander the third pronounced the decree of canonization and fixed the feast of st thomas of canterbury on the day of the archbishop's martyrdom in July, 1174, King Henry II 
moved by the reports which reached him in Normandy of the popular enthusiasm for Becket, and fearing the effects of the divine wrath, came himself to do penance at the martyr's tomb. Three months after the king of the English had given this public proof of his penitence and obtained release from the church's censures, the glorious choir of Conrad was destroyed by fire on the night of September 5, 1174. The rebuilding of the church, which was largely assisted by the offerings at Becket's tomb, was not finished until 1220, when the saint's body was removed to its final resting place in the new apse at the east end of the chapel of the Blessed Trinity, where the archbishop had said his first mass. On Tuesday, July 7th, an immense concourse of people of all ranks and ages assembled at Canterbury. The city and villages round, writes an eyewitness, were so filled with folk that many had to abide in tents or under the open sky. Free hospitality was given to all, and the streets of Canterbury literally flowed with wine. A stately procession, led by the young King Henry III and the patriot archbishop Stephen Langdon, entered the crypt and bore the saints' remains with solemn ceremonial to their new resting-place. Here a sumptuous shrine, adorned with gold plates and precious gems, wrought by the greatest master of the craft that could be found in England, received the martyr's relics, and the new apse became known as Becket's Crown. The famous St. Thomas now spread to all parts of the world during the next two centuries, and the Canterbury pilgrimage was the most popular in Christendom. The 7th of July was solemnly set apart as the Feast of the Translation of St. Thomas, and henceforth the splendor of this festival, through the anniversary of the actual martyrdom, into the shade. The very fact that it took place in summer and not in winter naturally attracted greater numbers of pilgrims from a distance, and on the jubilees or fiftieth anniversaries of the translation, the concourse of people assembled at Canterbury was enormous. Besides the crowds attracted by these two chief festivals, pilgrims came to Canterbury in smaller parties at all seasons of the year, but more especially in the spring and summer months. Each year, each year, as Chaucer sings, when the springtime comes round, when that operal with his showers swata, the drought of marches has pierced to the root, when Zephyrus eke with his swata breit, inspired hath in every holt and hetha, the tender crops, and small fowlers makin me lodi, that slepen in the night with open eye, then longen folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for to seeken strange strandes, and specially from every shire's enda of England, to Canterbury, where they wenda, the holy blissful martyr for to sake, that them hath holpen when they were sake. The passage of these caravans of pilgrims could not fail to leave its mark on the places and the people along their path. The sight of these strange faces, the news they brought, and the tales they told, must have impressed the dwellers in these quiet woodlands and lonely hills, and traces of their presence remain to this day on the Surrey Downs and the lanes of Kent. They may, or may not, have been responsible for the edible variety of large white snails, Helix pomatia, commonly called Roman snails, which are found in such abundance at Albury in Surrey and at Charing in Kent, as well as at other places along the road, and which the Norman-French pilgrims are traditionally said to have brought over with them. But the memory of their pilgrimage survives in the wayside chapels and shrines which sprung up along the track, in the churches which were built for their benefit, or restored and decorated by their devotion, above all in the local names still in common use along the countryside, Pilgrim's Lodge and Pilgrim's Ferry, Palmer's Wood, Paternoster Lane, these and similar terms still speak of the custom which had taken such fast hold of the popular mind during the three centuries and fifty years after the death of Becket. 
and recall the long processions of pilgrims which once wound over these lonely hills and through these green lanes on their way to the martyr's shrine end of chapter one recording by olivia a very ancient path it is far older than the days of the plantagenets and normans of shrines and pilgrimages